I was really on to chapter 40 when something caught my attention and brought me back to chapter 39, and that was Joseph's uh, ability to say no in a very difficult set of circumstances. Joseph was far away from his home, far away from the people uh, whom he loved. He was uh, uh, an indentured servant. He was a slave. And here is this beautiful, powerful woman uh, who wants to have a relationship with him, and he says no which led me to the question of how do you resist temptation? Temptation is something that happens every day uh, in the life of of followers of Jesus. This is not something that uh, we say, you know, temptation happens every once in a while. If you got here before uh, the service started, you heard music playing from the temptations. There was a little subtle message going on. You probably walked in and went, what church plays temptation music? Well, the church that's going to cover temptation is the topic for the morning. We have a kind of a sixth sense of humor around here, I guess. Uh, But it's a reality. Uh, and, and the question is, how do you uh, see temptation in your life? Do you see it as an opportunity for your faith to grow, uh, for the opportunity to learn God's direction in avoiding sin, uh, or do you simply uh, succumb and give in uh, and say, you know what, it's just going to happen, I'm going to sin, and there's nothing I can really do about it. I was listening to a presentation a few weeks ago by a, a pastor who was in a company that consulted with pastors. And, and he made this statistical statement. He said, we've done surveys with pastors and 60% of pastors admit to uh, some kind of sexual temptation in their lives. Uh, and, and he was going on, he was talking about how, you know, how this is a struggle and this was, was terrible. And I'm sitting in the back of the room and I'm thinking, yeah, that's a terrible statistic, but the worst statistic is that 40% of pastors are liars. <laughs> now, I don't want to trivialize this, and I certainly don't want to go off into any kind of inappropriate uh, uh, tangent here about that particular sin. But the facts are, (laughs) we all struggle with this issue in our lives. Temptation in any form, whether it be sexual or any other form of temptation, is a serious day-to-day challenge for the believer. And I think you have two options in the way in which you approach this. You could, you could approach it in a way where you say, you know, I'm going to try to modify my behavior. I'm going to try to just make some decisions differently. I'm going I'm to try to kind of move myself out of harm's way, and maybe I can figure out a way that I don't give in as often as I have before. But ultimately, I think you find that you will fail, and you'll succumb to what we would call repetitive sin. Uh, James talks about this in James chapter 1, where he says that, that we're tempted because of our desire. And when, when that desire is full grown, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it's full born, uh, gives birth to death. And James points uh, to kind of this death spiral that starts with te- desire and temptation in our lives. And, and I think if you try to just simply amend your behavior, that's where you end up. But I think the second option is to prayerfully live transparent, grace-centered lives. That doesn't remove us from temptation, but I believe it gives us a biblical paradigm for dealing with the struggles of temptation. And so I'm going to suggest this morning that we opt for uh, the second idea, that we prayerfully approach the topic of temptation in our lives built upon the grace of Christ and his mercy for us. I'm going to give you seven things that I think every disciple should know about temptation. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on any one of these. Anytime a pastor throws out a number, if it's three or less, everybody kind of goes, okay, that's not bad. Uh, When you get a little north of that, people start to panic. So I know when I said seven, a lot of you just started shaking just a little bit. I saw several of you glance over the clock to see about what time you were going to get to lunch eventually. Uh, But I'm, I'm going to just introduce these ideas to you. What I would suggest is that, that you, you follow them carefully and then you use them for your own personal study. 
that you can go back and you can take each one of these, and I'm going to give you verses for each one, and you can go back and throughout the week, you can study these as an individual, or if you're married, you can study them as a couple. A youth ministry, you guys can do a topical study on this. If you're in a community group, you can take these passages and say, hey, for the next seven times we get together, let's look at each one of these. So I'm not going to give you the sum and substance. We're going to, we're going to sprint through these, but hopefully some things will begin to click in our minds and we'll begin to understand how to deal with temptation from a biblical perspective. My first thought is this. God is not the source of our temptation. We are responsible for our sin. James says this in chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, if God doesn't doesn't tempt us, where does it come from? But each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his own desire. The first thing you need to understand about temptation is the enormous difference between being a victim and being a culprit or being culpable for how you respond to temptation. James is very clear. God is not sending temptation your way. God may test your faith, which James also talks about in chapter 1, God may put you in difficult circumstances and allow you to to wrestle through them in order for your faith to grow, but he never puts evil in your pathway. We are not victims. We cannot excuse ourselves. We cannot blame God. Uh, If you're a parent or if you're a child, you've maybe had this experience where the siblings are all together in one spot. Maybe they're, they're playing in the living room on a, on a rainy day since it's been rainy for the past couple of days. Maybe this has happened to, to somebody. And something gets broken, right? And mom or dad walks into the room. And what do the children do before they scatter, you know, to their, to their various places? They're pretty quick to point out the fact that it wasn't them, right? Uh, anytime that happened in our house, I was always quick to say, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And I think disciples of Jesus are pretty quick to go there. When sin happens in our lives, when we make bad choices, when we decide that we're going to reject what God has said, we're going to go in our own direction, we're then very, very quick to excuse or to shift the blame away from ourselves. If you want to see this in Scripture, let me suggest you that you read 1 Samuel chapter 15. And then if you want to see the opposite of this, read 2 Samuel 11. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is given orders by God, and he he just doesn't follow. He just blatantly disobeys. And the prophet Samuel comes and confronts him, and Saul gives every excuse in the book possible. He never gets around to a full confession of his sin. If you want to see what I'm talking about in this this idea of being a victim instead of being culpable, read 1 Samuel 15 as opposed to 2 Samuel 11. When David commits, I think, even a more heinous sin than Saul as far as its human consequences is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And the first words out of David's mouth after he's confronted by Nathan is, I have sinned against the Lord. There's a huge difference. There's an enormous difference between being a victim and being culpable. We need to accept responsibility for the fact that temptation, if it leads to sin in our lives, rests on our responsibility, not on God's. He is not the source. We're responsible. My second observation is this. Satan lives to tempt. This is out of Matthew chapter 4. Several different verses. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the tempter came, and then it goes on to describe all the things that happened. And then verse 9 kind of sums up the temptation where Satan says to Jesus, I will give you all these things if you will simply fall down and worship me. Temptation is more than an eternal mental exercise. 
It's not just your own desire. James is right. Uh, it, it is our desire. But there's something else going on here. It's a spiritual interaction. We have a spiritual enemy. In our day and age, it, it, it's somewhat foolish uh, to think about Satan in terms of a real fallen angel or to think that he actually has uh, demons that follow him whose, whose language is the language of temptation. I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, that's Satan's love language. You know that book, The Five Love Languages? Satan's love language, if there were such a thing, is the idea of tempting others, of drawing people, enticing people away from God. And if you don't understand you're in a spiritual battle, you're already two steps behind. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Screwtape Letters. It should be mandatory reading for every Christian. I was talking to a friend before the service who said, every time I pick up the book, I can't quite get through it. And I've had that same experience reading the Screwtape Letters. I wonder why that is. In the Screwtape Letters, there is a senior tempter who is writing to a junior tempter. And, he's, and the junior tempter is, has this subject that he's trying to tempt and draw away from the kingdom of God. And, and the, the uncle Screwtape is giving advice. And this is one of the pieces of advice that he gives the junior tempter. He says, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. He goes on to say, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is the old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. To laugh at the existence of Satan is to do so at our own peril. Satan is very real. His minions are very real. We are in a spiritual conflict and Satan lives to tempt. We need to be aware of that. My third observation is this. Scripture is our primary weapon. I'm going to stay in Matthew 4 for just a moment to look at the answers that Jesus gives every time Satan tempts him. Satan offers three temptations, and here's how Jesus responds. In verse 4, after Satan said, turn the rocks to bread, he said, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, but out of every word that comes from the mouth of God, And then Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself off a a pinnacle of the temple because God will take care of him. And he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then one more, uh, when when Satan uh, said, I'll give you everything if you'll just bow down to me. Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Scripture is our primary weapon against temptation. It's good to be thoughtful. It's good to, to uh, think about the, the areas of your life where you're tempted more than others. It's good to, to share your temptations with your friends. We'll come to that in just a moment. But our primary weapon against Satan's temptation is Scripture itself. Remember Genesis 3, way back at the very beginning of this study, when Satan comes to Eve, what does he say to her? Did God really say Satan tries to distort the word of God in the mind of Eve, and that's what he continues to do. That's what he tried to do with Jesus. Here he's twisting God's word to mean something else, but Jesus will have none of it. But in Jesus' reply, he quotes Scripture. 
I think that ought to tell us something. If, if the Lord himself, if God in the flesh uses scripture to combat Satan, it, it says to me that might be a good tool for me as well. If Jesus applied it that way in his life, I should, defeat, I should apply it that way in my life. And you look at Satan, he leaves Jesus. He can't stand up against scripture. Paul calls scripture the sword of the spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. When he's talking about us taking our stand against the schemes of the devil, he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, when I don't immerse myself in scripture on a daily basis, it's not that I'm guilty of not having a quiet time and, and, and that's a bad thing. Don't we know that all believers should have quiet times? There's a reason for that. The reason is to prepare you for the spiritual battle, for the temptations of that day, and remind you that one of your primary weapons is the Word of God itself. My fourth observation is that Scripture is our primary weapon. Prayer is the other. This is a direct quote from the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or or a better translation might be deliver us from the evil one. Uh, Maybe a better way to say that. When Jesus' disciples came to him, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Show us how to pray. Jesus made sure that a key part of this prayer and the prayer life of a disciple was to acknowledge the reality of temptation. We confuse this a little bit and think, well, well, are we actually praying for God not to do something that he promises that he won't do? And I understand that, that the language can be uh, a bit on the confusing side. But what Jesus is, is wanting his ty- disciples to acknowledge is that their footpaths are, their steps are on the steps toward temptation. And unless they acknowledge God's protection, that's where they're going to end up. And so they need to be led away from temptation by the Lord himself because the evil one is trying to pull them in the opposite direction. Let me read you one of my favorite prayers when it comes to the idea of standing against temptation. It's just a couple of sentences long. Dear Lord, so far today, I've gotten it all right. I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. And I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to have to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot of help. Amen. <laughs> that's, that's a great prayer. That's a wonderful prayer. I, I, I talk to friends every once in a while. I say, okay, I'm a, I, haven't, I haven't sinned so far today, you know, and it's about 7.45 in the morning. I said, that's awesome. Praise God. Call me at 4.30 and tell me, tell me how it worked out, but don't ask me because I, I don't want to have to confess everything that I've gotten wrong. But Jesus tells his disciples, you got to pray. You have to understand that God's desire is to lead you away from temptation. They're going to come. They're going to be part of your life. It's living in a fallen and a broken world. But you need to understand that God's word and your opportunity to come to him in prayer, to come to your father, is so important for your struggle against temptation. In Ephesians 6, after Paul says, put on the armor of God, and he goes through this whole long list of of all the stuff you put on, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, which he goes through this whole list, right? And at at the end of all that, what does he say? And pray on all occasions. Never stop praying. Scripture is our primary weapon. Prayer is the other. My fifth observation is this. Never instigate sin. Luke chapter 17, Jesus says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. 
It would be better for him if a millstone, which weighs about 6,000 pounds, just so you know, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I think this is a very subtle point because most of us assume that we would never be party to temptation. We would never willfully put some kind of temptation in another disciple's way. We may commit a sin. We may give in to temptation, but we certainly wouldn't be the one who would say uh, to one of Jesus' little ones, which are all of his children, we're all Jesus' little ones. It's not just uh, youthful children, not just younger children. It's every one of his disciples. I would never want to lead another one to commit a sin. And as, as you think back, you probably wrestle with your own sins. But you say, you know what? I don't think any of my sins are really, hey, why don't you come along with me? and Let's do this because it really goes against what God says. Most of us will say, God forbid, I, I, don't, I don't ever see that in my life. But do my actions or my attitudes endanger others spiritually? That's really the question here. I was, uh, and this has happened to me on more than one occasion. But several years ago, I, I was talking to a woman who was, uh, had come by my office. Uh, and she shared with me that she had had an affair outside of her marriage. And uh, she was broken. She was the, the shame and the guilt was not just written all over her face. She was wearing it like a, like a wardrobe. Uh, you could just see the oppression in her heart and, and the pain that was in her because she was so upset that she had committed this sin. I began to talk to her. We began to talk about God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Uh, and then I uh, had the opportunity to interact with, with she and her husband as a couple and what I, what I found from that exchange, what I discovered after, after talking with both of them and, and the husband admitting much of this were years of verbal abuse, never a kind word for his wife, a continual critical spirit that put her down. She could never do anything right. Angry outbursts that were relentless in nature, a self-righteous smugness that all but suffered her to death, suffocated her spiritually and emotionally. You tell me who to blame, who is to blame for that affair. I would say both of them. Do my angry outbursts cause my children to resent God in their heart? Does my attitude towards other create an atmosphere that draws others to sin and away from the grace of God. Friends, let's be very, very careful not to, not to, to even put our toe in the waters of self-righteousness. I think there are probably moments more often than we would care to admit, and I say this is really probably the most subtle one for us as disciples. We need to understand that God calls us not only to trust in him to move, him, to move us away from temptation, but he also calls us to account for our actions that may cause others to sin. My sixth observation is this. Temptation is common to all, and we must be so careful not to allow ourselves to be isolated. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul says this, there's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man or to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I, I, I think this is the, the, one of the richest verses in all of these verses that are, that are wonderfully rich and profound. Uh, but this verse in and of itself is, is worth weeks 
of study, and I, and I can't do it justice this morning. But one of the most frequent errors that I see in my life and I see in the life of other disciples as we're dealing with temptation and as we're dealing with sin is this. You know, my sin is so awful, I really can't share it with anybody else. I really can't talk to anyone about my sin. Why do you think 60% of those pastors and the other 40 who, who lied about it don't really want to say anything? Because they think they have to live a certain life in front of people that, oh my goodness, I could never tell what was really going on in my heart. People wouldn't want me to be their pastor. And, and you all have felt this too. You know you've been in a moment where you, you've looked at your life and go, oh my goodness, how can I call myself a disciple of Jesus and live this way? I could never share this with anybody else. That's where the next logical step goes to in our minds. And friends, that's from the pit of hell. That's what Satan wants you to do. Satan wants to say, look at this sin. This looks so good. It's tasty. It's nice. It's wonderful. You know, anybody ever wake up in the morning and go, gee, I got a sin again today. I go, oh, just wears me out to sin. I, I guess so if I'm supposed to. No, sin doesn't come that way. The temp, it's a temptation because it looks good. I saw a commercial. I'm not going to get it right, but it was about some, some chocolate cookie that it was um, give in to your temptation with, with all the, the passion, but none of the guilt. It had like no calories in it. And so I tasted it and that was a big lie. But, um, you know, the idea is, the idea is, you know, you can get away with it and it'll be okay. And that's what Satan says. He says, come on, this sin's really good. Come on over here. And then you go over there and you jump right in and you give in a temptation. And then Satan goes, you're not a Christian. How could you possibly be a disciple of Jesus and live that way? And the condemnation just comes and it pounds you down and it pounds you down and we let it because we got to keep it to ourselves. No. Every temptation is common to man. Whatever temptation you're facing is one. Whatever sin that, that may have its kind of tentacles around you and have you all wrapped up is not specific to you. It is not common to you. Friends, either the cross of Christ saves us or it doesn't. You don't have anything to boast about. I don't have anything to boast about. Jesus either did it all and paid all the price for all of your sins and all of my sins, or he didn't pay the price for any of them. It's that simple. So we need to kind of get off our spiritual high horse here, friends, and we need to be willing to live transparent lives in front of one another. We need to be willing to confess our temptations. I believe when, when, when Paul says he will give you a way of escape, part of that way of escape is the body of Christ. Part of the answer to that question is the fact that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ around me that experience the same temptations that I experience, that experience the same failures against those temptations. And if I'm willing to talk about it, and if I'm willing to kind of get it out on the table, everybody kind of goes, yeah, I struggle there too. You have a, you have a struggle. How do you handle it? Well, well, let's pray for each other. Let's talk. How do we hold one another accountable? And all of a sudden, the ideas get going and the body starts functioning the way it's supposed to start functioning and Satan's defeated. So why do you think he wants to keep you isolated? Because he wants to keep you trapped in your sin. We cannot allow sin to isolate us. I'm talking to a friend these days who, uh, who is, is in that place. He's in a really dark spot and he can't quite get himself to come to church. But there are a couple of us that are just hanging out with them. And, I, and, and we've, we've kind of strategized and we've said to one another, whatever we do, we, we can't lose contact with this guy. We cannot let him get isolated because there will be his downfall. How many of us just hold it in and don't share it with others because we're thinking that there's something wrong with us and everybody else is okay. It's common to all. 
Don't allow yourself to be isolated. And I'll say this before I give you the, the seventh one. We, we uh, start to close up here. It's my impression, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. It's my impression that Green Tree Community Church is a relatively safe place. I don't think it's a completely safe place because we're sinners, and we're going to get it wrong from time to time. But, but I can tell you that if you sought out a pastor or an elder or a deacon in this congregation, you said to him, I really need some help with this particular temptation, you're not going to be judged. We're not going to put it on the screen the next Sunday. Hey, here's Jim's big sin. Let's just all look at this and let's all pray for Jim. We're not going to do that. And if your name is Jim this morning, I apologize. That, I, 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 didn't, I don't know anything about your sin. Wait, I'm getting a vision. No, that's not. Um, but I, I think they would respond in humility. And I think they would, there would be a genuine spiritual care for you. Um, I think it would be a, a relatively safe place to say, here's, here's where I am. And I need help with this temptation. I'm, I'm tired of kind of going it alone. So I'm encouraging that area. And then the last one, the seventh observation is this. Jesus is ready, willing, and able to help. I'm going to read you two different passages, one out of Hebrews chapter 2 and then one out of Hebrews 4. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. The author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that word propitiation simply means payment, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then skip ahead to chapter 4. We do not have a high priest, again, speaking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, or let us therefore, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think it is astounding to think that Jesus suffered with the struggle of temptation, that Jesus had to face the same emotions and the same thoughts that run through my head on a regular basis, but to a greater extent than I have ever experienced it. I, I don't understand where this notion comes from. Well, Jesus doesn't really understand temptation because he was God. Friends, one of the most important things, you don't get anything else in this, out of this sermon. He's been re- tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. I get tempted, and I hang in there for a little while, and I hang in there for a little while, and then I give in. Jesus was tempted with sin, and he hung in there, and he hung in there, and he hung in there. He didn't quit, and he hung there because I can't hang in there, and he did that for me. I haven't begun to understand temptation to the degree to which Jesus understands temptation. And notice that his victory being complete He doesn't sit on the throne of judgment. He isn't glorified in heaven so he can look down on you and say, why don't you get it? Come on now. How come you're so slow on the uptake? No. He has ascended to where? To the throne of grace. So that those of us who hang in there and hang in there and then turn away can come and receive mercy and find compassion and find love. It's because he understands temptation firsthand that he sits on the throne of grace. He offers mercy and grace and help freely, not grudgingly. I've really gone through these points quickly. It may not feel like it, but you sitting out there. 
Temptation is a daily struggle. It's a daily struggle until the moment that we see Jesus face to face. We ignore these truths to our own spiritual detriment. I can play the victim. I can excuse my actions. I can blame my failure to stand against sin on others. Remember that, that great comic flip Wilson in the 70s? His, uh, his uh, character Geraldine, the devil made me do it. You know, never, never, never her fault, always someone else's. But if I choose that pathway, it doesn't mean that I'm separated from Christ. It doesn't mean that, that, that I lose my salvation, but it certainly means I'm going to be spiritually broken in, in ways that I don't need to be. And I'm going to struggle with sin to a degree that uh, in isolation and alone and simply by trying to modify my behavior that will never really bring me to grips ultimately and truthfully with the grace of God. Or the flip side of that, option two, as I said earlier, is we can face our temptation head on. Acknowledge that it's there in honesty and humility. And we can allow the body of Christ and the word of God and our prayer lives to be the, the weapons of our warfare so that we can grow in our faith. We're not going to get it perfect. We're not going to get it right. We will, we will sin until the day we open our eyes and go, that's Jesus right there, I'm home. Until that moment, we will sin. But by God's grace, we can grow in faith. And our struggle with temptation can become more and more victorious because we'll be standing in his power and in his grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, uh, that your word would be powerful in our hearts and in our minds. Father, I, I've, I've skipped through this pretty quickly. I just kind of hit the high points. There's a lot more that could be said. But Father, I, I thank you that Joseph withstood that temptation. I thank you that he saw it as a sin against you and the seeds that were probably planted by his, his father allowed him to, uh, to understand his situation and to, and to flee that temptation. And Father, I thank you for the disciples in this room who have learned those lessons and, and have stood against temptation and have so much to teach the rest of us. Father, I pray that we would be a, a part of your body that, uh, not that we, that we dwell on it or consume by temptation, but Lord, that we see it for what it is. That we understand that it's going to be in this broken world until the day we see you. And we're not oddballs, we're not, we're not outcasts if we fall short and we, and we lose the struggle against temptation. Father, I pray that you would make this a safe place where we can share with one another our struggles, where we can minister to one another the grace of God. We call sin what it is. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to pretend that, that it's okay to turn against you. But Lord God, that we would exhibit the mercy and the grace of Christ with one another and that we would create opportunities for one another to stand against temptation for your glory, for our spiritual good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.